back in our Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew, which we are looking at in these uh, Sundays during December. Uh, I think all of you know that our pulpit committee wanted a series of sermons on the theme of Advent, and both morning and afternoon we're uh, just going to be working our way through Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2. Last Sunday we looked at chapter 1 verses 1 to 17, and now uh, today, this morning, we're going to look at verses 18 to uh, 21, and then in the afternoon, verses 21 to 24. If you watch dramas on television or, or watch movies, however you do that, uh, one of the things that happens that you almost don't notice is that what you see is absolutely determined by the director. You have no choice. Not only that, but the camera that is being used and the camera angles become your eyes. So you are always, although it doesn't seem like this to you, you're always seeing the story from a particular point of view. And often during uh, the course of the drama, the camera angle will change, the lenses, the shots will change. That's a technique that has been around since people began to tell stories. Uh, of course, we have this amazing technology today but if you think about it, every author who has ever written has become your eyes through which you see the drama. And therefore, the same story can be told through different camera angles. And we see that, don't we, in the Gospels. The drama is one, but the camera angles are different. Luke's camera angle is quite different from Matthew's camera angle. And also the same author may use different camera angles. And Matthew is doing exactly that here at the beginning of his gospel. He was using a long lens, wasn't he, in the first section, going through at two millennia of history from Abraham to the birth of our Lord Jesus. But now the camera angle changes. And you'll notice that actually from this point onwards, Matthew uses a very different camera angle from Luke. Matthew's camera angle is on Joseph. Luke's camera angle is on Mary. In Matthew, you see the story, you hear the words through the eyes and ears of Joseph. Matthew may have known Joseph. Certainly at some point, Joseph must have passed this experience described in the passage that uh, was read to us by Stephen. He must have passed this on to someone else. It came from him. We might say these verses 18 through 25 in Matthew chapter 1 are Joseph's story. And we're going to look at this in a number of different ways. 
because it turns out to be a very, very dramatic story. And although at Christmas time we often think much more of Mary than we do of Joseph, in a sense, in Matthew's story, Joseph is the one through whose eyes we need to look if we are to see what it is that God is doing. Matthew introduces the story, doesn't he, with a summary statement that's full of promise. The birth of Jesus Christ, whom he had mentioned in verse 1. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. But then immediately the story's atmosphere is radically transformed. And the first stage in it is a word about Mary that must have produced devastation. A word about Mary, his betrothed, that must have produced devastation. Before they came together. I think most of us understand that marriage customs in antiquity, very different from marriage customs today. Uh, Girls were betrothed when they were around 14 or 15. Mary is almost certainly a teenager. And the marriage has been arranged and the vows have already been taken. And in the culture in which they are living, after those vows have been taken, about a year will pass before they come together. And unlike engaged couples today, they will probably never be on their own together. And if this engagement, if this betrothal is to be broken off, it's not just a matter of handing back the ring with a letter of apology. It involves the breach, the destruction of a legal covenant. It involves profound and widespread shame, certainly in a small town. It involves financial rearrangements. And this is a situation in which Joseph finds himself. He and Mary are betrothed. This is why he is called her husband. They are legally bound, covenantally bound to one another, but hardly ever seeing one another. And in a way that Matthew doesn't explain, but expresses in these devastating words, Mary, his betrothed, his teenage chosen one, is with child. Matthew doesn't tell us how this happened. He leaves us, in a sense, to our imagination. Did did Mary manage to send a message to him? Did Mary's father perhaps appear one day in Joseph's carpenter's shop with a a solemn look on his face? Matthew doesn't tell us. But the effect of Joseph discovering this, she was found to be with child. The very language expresses a a sense of, of shock and horror. And this ought not to be. And what's very interesting about this, if you think about it, is that on the one hand, this is all under the sovereign superintendence of God. 
but God didn't need to do it this way. Why do I say that? I say that because Luke tells us how Mary discovered she was going to have the Lord Jesus. She had a visitation from the mighty angel Gabriel because she needed to know. But this narrative surely makes us ask the question, why did Gabriel not simply cross town and visit Joseph and save him the the distress and the devastation and the crushing that would result from this discovery that Mary was with child? It would have been presumably the easiest thing in the world for Gabriel to do that if God had commanded it. And so we find God's sovereign purposes working out in Joseph's life in a way that makes us ask the question, why? Why, when we know from the Old Testament scriptures, God never afflicts his children willingly. But now his hopes are in ruins. And I don't think it's too much imagination to say that the man's sense of his own ability to decide anything must have been left in ruins. And so Matthew's account of the nativity raises for us the question, why did the Lord act differently with Joseph from the way he acted with Mary? And certainly looking at this through the lenses of the whole of Scripture, there's really only one conclusion that we can come to, isn't there? That the Lord bruised him because he wanted to use him. The Lord bruised him because he wanted to use him. And if you think about who it was who was coming into his home, who it was that for the next, at least we know, 12 years and we presume beyond that, would be the earthly father of the one who would come to be bruised for our iniquities, the man of sorrows who would be acquainted with grief. Then as we saw, I think, last time, we understand that although Joseph adopts Jesus, it was really Joseph who was being adopted to be his father, as he's actually called in the New Testament, to be the one who would care for, think about it, who would actually be the one who would model before the Lord Jesus as the scriptures taught fathers to do, to model what it meant to live for the glory of God. He bruised him in order to use him. God works in different ways. He worked in a different way in Mary's life. She too would be bruised, but not at the moment. He doesn't treat us all in exactly the same way. My mother used to say to us, I had a brother, she would say to us, I 
I love you the same, and I've always tried to treat you the same. And even when I was a little boy, I wanted to say, but daren't say, you don't really treat us the same, mom. I know you love us the same. But actually, to be honest, I see I get away with a lot more than my big brother does. She loved us exactly the same. But she saw we were different. And she didn't treat us the same. She must have had some little sense of the the particular gifts that we had, the differences in our lives. Perhaps even at some point a sense of what might become of us. And if that's true of an earthly parent, how much more of the heavenly father. You know, as you read through Scripture and certainly as you, as you think about people you may know whom the Lord seems to have used, uh, if you get to know them intimately, I think you will always find a wound, a bruise, because it's the way he prepares us to serve the Lord Jesus. But at the moment, all we know for Joseph is that the word about Mary has brought devastation. How can this, how can this dear man ever be sure again that he's making the right decision? And the Lord has bruised him. But then second, I want you to notice the word of Scripture that led him to his decision because this is very significant. Uh, Matthew tells us up front, this was the work of the Holy Spirit, but I think we can assume Joseph doesn't know this. Or if he did know it, how could he possibly believe it? And so, being a just man, that is, a righteous man, a tzaddik, there's only one thing he can do. He knows the Scriptures. He knows the book of Deuteronomy, probably off by heart. He instinctively thinks of Deuteronomy 22 and the the judgment that should fall on anyone who commits adultery, and this was adultery. Mary was married to him. And sometimes we read those verses and and the capital punishment that was involved and And we think of adultery as such a small and slight thing that we are horrified that this is the punishment without realizing that in the eyes of Scripture, adultery was a breach of every single one of the commandments in the second table of the law. It was a dishonoring of father and mother. It was taking someone else's future life. It was theft. It involved deceit. It was coveting something that didn't belong to you. It was was overwhelmingly serious and solemn, and still is. And Joseph, a man of God's word, a just, righteous man, that Those two words have lost their biblical sense, haven't they? Um, Mary's relatives, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they were also 
righteous. What did that mean? It meant that they loved the Lord and that they walked in covenant fellowship with him. That's what it meant. It didn't mean they were snooty or holier than thou, but that they loved the Lord and they wanted to please him. They were They were Micah-type people. What does the Lord require of you but to do righteously and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? And certainly Joseph was not only a a Micah 5 man, a Micah 6 man, I beg your pardon. He He was also an Isaiah 66 man. This is the man to whom I look, the man who trembles at my word who is humble in heart and will always do what I command. And Joseph is left with no other option. But whatever his personal feelings are in this matter, and they must have been profoundly broken and shattered. He wants to bow before the word of the Lord because he knows it's the only safe place to be. And yet, I wonder if you noticed in the reading that Matthew says something that suggests that Joseph hesitated. Now, if you read on about Joseph, there are two more places in Matthew 1 and 2 where it's clear When God told Matthew something, when God told Joseph something to do, Joseph did it immediately. When he's told to get on with it, he does it. When when he has the, the, the vision in the night and is told you need to go to Egypt, they get up and go to Egypt. He is a decisive obeyer of God's word. Lord, you say it and I'll do it. And yet, Do you notice what Matthew says here? He says, as Joseph considered these things. From one point of view, you might say, Joseph had no business considering these things. When God makes something plain in his word, you're derelict if you respond. Well, let me consider that. From one point of view, you might say Joseph had no business considering it. His business was to do it. And yet, on the other hand, this seems to be so out of character with what Matthew will tell us about Jesus' father, Joseph. And so I think he's saying something to us, isn't he? Uh, A hesitation. He's trying to bring God's word to bear on the situation that he faces. And it seems from what he knows of God's word and the situation, everything seems clear. And yet there's just, well, there's something that doesn't seem to fit. And so there's this hesitation. It's a great lesson for us, actually. It's a great lesson to develop a sufficient spiritual sensitivity to realize that that 
what we think God may want us to do may not in fact be what he wants us to do, that there is something in the picture that we are not quite getting. And we, the, we the reader, we the hearers, we know there's something in the picture he's not getting. You know, if this were a drama, somebody would shout out from the audience, don't do that, Joseph. You've got it wrong. And so there seems to be some kind of God-given restraint on his spirit. And when we walk with the Lord, we we need to be sensitive to those God-given restraints that, that may advise us there's something here that doesn't seem to fit. There's, there's a piece missing in the picture. You ever watch those quiz programs where you'll get a piece of the picture one by one, and as it builds up, you're absolutely sure what the picture is, and then the last piece goes in and you realize it's an entirely different picture altogether. Now, what do you do when that happens? What does, what does a man or woman who wants to be obedient to God's word, who lives in covenant fellowship with him, who wants to be sensitive to every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord, well, I don't have the wisdom to give you the advice, so let me borrow the advice of a great figure from the 17th century by the name of John Flavel. And these words from a, a wonderful book he wrote entitled The Mystery of Providence, and he knew a great deal about the mystery of providence. He actually knew a great deal about a plague that was far more devastating in England than the present COVID-19 has been in the United Kingdom or anywhere in the world. About a third of the population of London died in those days. So he knew something about the mystery of providence. In his wonderful book, he asked this question, what do I do in situations where I'm not quite sure I've got the whole picture. How do I discover God's will? And he says, govern yourself in your search by these rules. Number one, get the true fear of God on your heart so that you're afraid of offending him. Study the word of God more and the concerns and interests of the world less. Turn what you know of God's word into practice, and you will slowly learn what is your duty to practice. Pray for illumination and direction in the way you should go, and ask the Lord to guide you, especially that he would not allow you to fall into sin. And this being done, follow providence as far as it agrees with the word and no further. And if you reflect on Joseph, you can, you can put the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle of this story together and see that it looks as though he did exactly that. The true fear of God, that love of God that makes me never want to grieve him, never want to lose his smile, 
that study of the word, Lord, what does this mean and how does it apply? And, and how am I going to work this out? And Lord, please give me light. And then following providence as far as it agrees with the word. And you see the missing piece comes to him, doesn't it? In the night, uh, by an angelic dream. Interesting, isn't it, that God is dealing with Joseph still in a different way. He's dealing from Mary. And in this dream in the night, the way becomes clear. So there's a word that comes from Mary that causes devastation. There's a word that comes from Scripture that leads to a decision, but also a hesitation. Now, what is he hesitating about? What doesn't fit the picture? The answer is obvious, isn't it? From all we know of her, it's Mary that doesn't fit the picture. It's not just wishful thinking on Joseph's part. Surely Mary could never have done this. It's from what he knows about Mary. Surely Mary couldn't have done this. Somehow or another, I'm not seeing the whole picture. And that leads to the third stage in these verses. Uh, Word from Mary brings devastation. Word of God that leads to a decision, but also to hesitation. And then the word of the angel that shines light on the situation. And that happens, doesn't it? I remember listening to a, an interview uh, with Ian Murray, the, the biographer of Martin Lloyd-Jones, in which he was being asked by an American minister about Dr. Lloyd-Jones' pastoral ministry. And Mr. Murray said, you know, there were times when people would go to see him after a service, burdened, uh, distressed, perplexed. And sometimes just after 10 minutes with him, they would leave. And it was, the, it was the phrase he used that really struck me. They would leave with light on their situation. And that's what we need, isn't it? That is often what we need. We need light. And light that, that oh, now I see. I've been struggling in the darkness. I don't know what to do. I want to be faithful to the Lord. This is why we are not only to wait upon the Lord in prayer, but we are to wait for the Lord in his providence. And then God sends his word through the angel that shines light on the situation and gives Joseph the missing piece of the puzzle. And we'll look at that missing piece uh, this afternoon. But what I want you to notice now is that it looks as though this dream angel approaches Joseph the same way Gabriel approached Mary. Remember what Gabriel says to Mary, don't be afraid, Mary. And this dream angel says to Joseph, don't be afraid, Joseph, but you'll see even here there's a difference. It looks as though what Mary fears is an angel. Um, you know, amazing, incidentally, how much talk there is about angels today that you would never fear. But if you meet the angel of the Lord here, 
and Mary trembles. But that's not Joseph's problem because he's asleep. And what the angel is saying to him is not, don't be afraid of angels. He's saying, don't be afraid of taking Mary to be your wife. And you see, now he has some understanding that that is going to be costly. Don't be afraid to take this step, even although you have some sense it's going to be very costly. It's going to be very costly socially, very costly with what people may say behind your back. He doesn't know the story that's going to unfold in God's providence that will protect them to a degree from that. All he knows is that it's going to be costly and the angel is saying to him, don't be afraid to do it because this is God's work and this is a situation in which God will be with you. They may well be the most frequently repeated words in the Bible apart from begat and words like that. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The man who trembles at the word of God, the woman who trembles at the word of God, that is, is deeply conscious of a reverence and fear for the Lord that they do not want to lose the smile of his countenance upon them, is bound to be faced with a costly way. But we do not need to fear. That's the word. That's the promise. It's interesting, isn't it, how many of our Christmas songs concentrate on Mary. And uh, if we were reading Luke's gospel, we would be spending a lot of time talking about Mary. But I don't know, is it, is it that poets find it more difficult to write poetry about Joseph? Is it that there's something about him that seems so anonymous apart from these two chapters in Matthew? He appears only once more in a few verses in Luke. We know very little about him. And yet you see Matthew is telling us a great deal about him. But chiefly what he's telling us about him here is that God has adopted him to be the adopting father of his incarnate son. We sing, don't we, sometimes at Christmas time, as in once in royal David's city, and through all his wondrous childhood, he would honor and obey, love and watch the lowly maiden in whose gentle arms he lay. Mary was that mother, mild Jesus Christ, her little child. You just need to think about it to realize that the day would come when Jesus would spend far more time in Joseph's presence than in Mary's presence. What God was doing here was preparing the man in whose workshop, by whose side. This is the man who would fulfill the commands of the Old Testament to talk when you're on 
when you're on a walk with your children, point your children to the Lord. Live before them as a godly example that they may see in you what it means to know and love the Lord. And this is the man that Jesus is going to be watching, 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 watching for these early years in his life. Oh, my friends, we want to insist with all our might and main on the deity of the Lord Jesus. But you see, God is, God is his heavenly father. And it matters to God, his heavenly father, who is the model of a covenant life when he's just a boy. And Luke actually tells us, this is an amazing thing, isn't it? Luke actually tells us that when Joseph and Mary messed up and left him in Jerusalem without even knowing he was there, and when Mary gave him a row in those classic motherly words, your father and I, You remember what Luke tells us he did? He went down home with them and he was obedient to them. This is, this is God's work preparing his man for his son. And such a man would need to be the kind of man who would bow before the word of God and say to him, not my will, but yours be done. I want to be obedient to your word. Such a man would need to model what it is to know sorrow and grief, to have scars healed by grace that modeled for his adopted son a life that would mean he would be the man of sorrows acquainted with grief from whom men would hide their faces. That he would in the garden of Gethsemane be able to say, not my will, but your will be done. It had been true in Joseph. And that was the kind of man God wanted for his son. Oh, my friends, there are many lessons here, aren't there? The way in which God invests in our lives through pain and sorrow and disappointment. Things go wrong. And it's one of the, one of the wonders of knowing the Lord that you do not need to fear that he will work everything together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And this was his purpose for Joseph. But you know, there's also a word for us here as parents, isn't there? Maybe especially fathers. Uh, if this is the kind of man God wants to prepare for his perfectly sinless son, do our sons and daughters need anything less? And those who fear the Lord, who walk in covenant faithfulness, who are obedient to his word, who develop instincts to sense that there are things 
that I can't quite understand, but there's something not right about this picture and I need to I need to take the strain of waiting for the Lord. And in his goodness, Joseph did not have to wait long for the Lord to show him. And so when he woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. This is the Lord's way with Joseph. It will be the Lord's way with some of us that he may wish to bruise us in order to use us. You know these words of Amy Carmichael? Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die, and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar. Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar. This is all in the Lord's providential hands. He loves us equally, but he doesn't treat us all in the same way. But this will be true of all of us if we are to be fruitful and useful in his service. He will want to make us like Christ in order that others may see Christ in the lives we live. And all of it. He does not, he does not grieve us willingly. But if he bruises us, it is because he wants to use us. What a wonderful father. What a great saviour. What an amazing providence are you yielding are you because you do not ever want to grieve him and lose his smile do you do you tremble at his word are you instant in obedience but growing in sensitivity in order to be able to sense like like someone listening to a even a great pianist playing and and you just sense, ah, he just missed something there. You live in fellowship with the Lord and as you do, his word unfolds, the picture unfolds. And what you know is what Joseph learned, that in giving yourself unreservedly to him, you will never ever have anything you really need to fear. Well, may that be true of us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the ways in which in your word you write in large letters in the lives of some of your children the, the very principles that you write in smaller letters into our own lives, in our own little sphere. 
We pray for ourselves and for one another that we may be willing to bow before your word, that we may grow in sensitivity to your hand in providence, that we may ever have your smile upon our face, and that in our homes and families we may be true models and types of the Lord Jesus Christ, that those who belong to us, whom we love most, will be able to watch us and see your hand upon us, his love within us, your cross upon our shoulders, your grace in our hearts, and all for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and for our blessing. We pray this in his name.